Ignorance is bliss. Raise your hand if you've heard that. Of course you have, right? But what does that phrase actually mean? What does ignorance is bliss actually mean? I mean, yeah, a person who doesn't know about a problem doesn't have to worry about it, right? That's what it's getting at. A person who doesn't know about a problem doesn't have to worry about it. But sometimes it's better not to know the truth so that you don't have the weight of the world on your shoulders. So, for example, ignorance is bliss when I don't know how much fat and sugar are in a cinnamon roll from Briar Rose or in that mocha frappuccino from Starbucks, right? Lack of knowledge allows me to enjoy a guilt-free drink. Wonderful. Ignorance is bliss for those who don't receive the daily news on their phones, so they're not bombarded with the sky-is-falling narrative in the media. However, ignorance is bliss. That mindset, that mindset is often employed to keep the hard realities of life at bay, to ignore something so that it doesn't affect us or interrupt our desire for peace and comfort. And so ignorance is not always bliss. It's not always bliss. If you don't bother to look at your syllabus to see that there's a test in your class that day, it's not going to be bliss whenever you look around and everybody's pulling out their Scantron. Do people still use Scantrons? Okay. Wait, Trent, Arnie's saying no, and some are saying yes. I don't understand. Do they use Scantrons? Depending on the class. Okay, there's your answer. Anyways, if you look around and see everybody getting ready for a test, it's not going to be bliss for your soul when you see that because you're ignorant of not understanding that there was a test that day. That's not bliss. You get the point. Ignorance is not always bliss. And what we're going to see this morning is that being unaware of spiritual warfare is not going to provide any comfort whenever Satan is out seeking to devour you. <laughs> it's not going to provide you any comfort. C.S. Lewis noted in his book, The Screwtape Letters, which is excellent, by the way, I encourage you to get that, that there are two equal and opposite errors in which our race, just talking about mankind, in which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. I think often within church circles today, there is an unhealthy interest with the devil and everything that goes along with that. There is also, though, I think another problem. And I think Lewis is exactly right. I think that's certainly true. But I would add another problem. And that's being unaware and ill-equipped for the spiritual war that's going on around you. The problem with such ignorance is that the Apostle Peter tells us that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's the problem. And if you're ignorant and ill-equipped, and understand, I'm not using ignorance in some sense in a derogatory term. I'm just saying you just don't know. You've not got any knowledge about how to fight and take up the battle against spiritual forces of evil, right? Being unaware of a war being waged around you is going to eventually make you lion's meat. That's what's going to happen. And yet there's good news. The Lord has supplied us with all the resources that we need to wage this fight. And that's why we're going to spend the next five weeks thinking about fighting sin and temptation. And so this morning, we're going to see that that battle, though, is not something new. It started in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. And primarily this morning, I'm speaking to the believer. I just want to make a note of that. I'm speaking primarily to the believer. 
Okay, we're not getting into demonology. We're not going to be talking about demon possession or demon affliction or oppression. We're not getting into all of that this morning. Okay? That's not this lesson. Um, and so this morning I want to begin by looking at Genesis 3. However, before we get there, we have to ask the question, what is spiritual warfare? What is it? What would you all say is spiritual warfare? How have people often said that, yeah, given a definition to it? Okay, tempted by an outside force. Spirit in the flesh at conflict, all right. A little Romans 8 action, talk about that next week. What else? Anything else? The devil. All right, that's a good, yeah, wonderful. Um, so, yeah. The term spiritual warfare is actually never even mentioned in the Bible. It's never mentioned in the Bible, okay? And so it's not uh, necessarily, uh, that term is more of a pastoral theological term used to describe the conflict at the heart of every Christian. That's what that's getting at. Spiritual warfare, and this is kind of the definition for it. If you want to write this down underneath that kind of question, what it is, spiritual warfare is the struggle over whom you will serve in the battle between the Lord and his enemies. Spiritual warfare is the struggle, it's the conflict, it's the battle over whom you will serve in the conflict, in the battle between the Lord and his enemies. That's what spiritual warfare is. As David Pallison puts it in his book, Safe and Sound, which is excellent, I'm thinking about giving it away next week, he says this, it's a conflict, spiritual warfare is a conflict over who you are, what you believe, and how you live. It's moral. It's a moral conflict over who you are, what you believe, and how you live. This warfare that we face isn't made up of a couple of just kind of spiritually bizarre moments in your life, you know, like where something extraterrestrial or freaky happens. That's not what it's getting at. As Pallison puts it, Mundane evil is the devil's business. Spiritual warfare is daily. It's regular. It's normal. It's happening as we speak right now, right? Maybe my flesh is tempted to want your praise. Spiritual warfare is going on right there. That's just an example. This warfare isn't made up of just a couple of crazy moments. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Paul is speaking to believers in Ephesus, in the church in Ephesus, and he's referring to their time before Christ their time outside of Christ. And what we see in this passage is that there is a war within us and there's a war outside of us. The war within us is over the passions of the flesh, as Paul says, the desires of our body and mind, the evil desires of our hearts that are in opposition to God and his word. Right? Your desire to just want to go and disobey God. Okay? There's also a war outside of us and it's with the disobedient ways of this world that follows Satan, the prince of the power of the air, as Paul says. 
the Spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience, the ways of the world that are in opposition to God and his word. And so what we see right here is a threefold moral enemy of the world, the flesh, and the devil. How many of you have heard that kind of three terms, the world, the flesh, and the devil? Anybody? Okay. So world, flesh, and the devil. It's kind of just a threefold way of talking about the enemy, right? Inside of us, outside of us, that's trying to tempt us uh, into sin. An unholy trinity, as some have called it. And for the rest of our time, I want us to focus on this war from Genesis 3. that begins in Genesis 3. And what we're going to see is that Scripture actually never ignores Satan. Never ignores Satan. Neither does it put Satan front and center. Instead, what is front and center is God and man's relationship to God. That's what's front and center. Okay, so let's look at Genesis 3. Someone read Genesis 3, 1 through 15. You've got it there in your handout. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so context, just before Genesis 1, or just before Genesis 3, in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world by his word, and all of his creation is very good. And then he commands man in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, that you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Okay, that is God's word to man, it's his command. You can eat of all the trees, but this one or else you will surely die. Then we've got a new character that enters the picture with Adam and Eve, a snake. And though Satan's name isn't mentioned, I think we see throughout Scripture 
that the, sa- that the snake is really a manifestation of Satan himself, as we see from Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. And so here we've got the first war in the Bible, and it is a war of words. That's what it is. It's a war of words. Notice what we learn about spiritual warfare from this passage. Number one, Satan is destructively deceptive. That's right, I'm pulling out all the stops with the adverbs this morning. Satan is destructively deceptive. The first thing that we notice is that he manifests himself not in some kind of grand introduction with a guy in his pitchfork, with his tail, and his horns, right? That's not, that's not how Satan presents himself, but as a little serpent in a field, just a little serpent in a field not something that we would expect. But it says right there in verse 1 of chapter 3, the Satan, or the Satan, the serpent is crafty, right? Not only is he crafty, he is cunning, right? And so he is sneaky. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, Paul tells us that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light to dupe people into living contrary to God's word. Satan's favorite clothing is camo. I recently bought just a a camo wallet. It's pretty sweet. But Satan's clothing is camo. So not only is he deceptive in appearance, he's also deceptive in his tactics in undoing the order of creation. Who does he go to first? Who does he go to first? Eve. God created Adam first. He wants to undo creation because he's not a creator. He's a creature. And he wants to undo creation in order to create chaos. That's what he wants to do. That's what he seeks to do. He's deceptive in appearance. He's deceptive in tactics. And most importantly for our purposes, he's deceptive in his speech. In verse 1, he calls into question God's word. Did God actually say? Did God actually say? He's trying to sow seeds of doubt. He wants to undo God's word by getting his victims to question it. In the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, Jesus tells us that the seed sown along the path and devoured by the, ver- by the birds illustrates Satan snatching the word of the kingdom out of the hearts of man so that they can't understand it and believe. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. He is blinding them. And so in verse 1, he's sowing seeds of doubt. And then he's twisting God's word. He says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He tries to make God look like a killjoy. That's what he's doing right here. In fact, God actually said that they could eat of any tree except one. If there ever is a disinformation campaign... This is one for the ages. Satan distorts the truth to make God look unloving, untrustworthy, and like he's not good. That's what's going on. And Satan is the ultimate king of cancel culture. He's the ultimate king of cancel culture. How does he do that? He wants to cancel God's word for his own. And that's what he's doing. He's the king of cancel culture. And so in verse 4 right there, actually, yeah, from verse, four, from verse 1 to verse 4, right, we see that it's just continuing to move to the point where not only is he distorting it, but he's actually going to deny God's word. That's where he's moving to. 
He says, you will not surely die in verse four. When God said in chapter two, verse 16, that if they ate of the one tree, they would surely die. (laughs) It's a flat out rejection of God's word. He's a deceiver because if he can snatch God's word from you, so seeds of doubt and disbelief, then he can enslave you and destroy you. After all, where do his lies lead? Where do they lead in the text? This is a, right, this is back and forth here. Where do they lead in the text? Where do his lies lead? What's the result of buying into a lie? Disobedience, what's the result of disobedience? Death, right? Death, that's where it leads. It's a reminder that disobedience is no friend to joy. It's no friend to joy, but is rather a friend to misery and to death. And this serves as a helpful definition, I think, for temptation, right? So if you want to write this down, this is important, specifically because the whole lesson over the next five weeks is fighting sin and temptation. And so temptation, then, I think, is anything that aims to influence you away from God and towards sin. Anything, right? Temptation is anything that seeks to influence you away from God and towards sin. That's temptation. That's the nature. That's the aim of temptation. It's to lead you into sin. And that can come either by way of Satan, the world, or from ourselves, whether individually, or some kind of combination of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Okay? That's how it can happen. And this is helpful distinction, I think, from the word testing. You're going to see throughout the scriptures, you've got temptation and you've got testing. Throughout scripture, we see God testing his people, but not tempting his people, as we're told in James chapter 1, verse 13, that God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. The primary difference of the two is their aim. It's their purpose. That's the primary difference. Temptation aims to move you away from God to sin, while testing aims to move you away from sin to God. God tests his people to see what's in them so that they would recognize they need more of him. They need more of him. They need to trust. They need to rely upon him. Temptation just wants to move you away from God so that you'll sin and be destroyed. And in Genesis 3, we see that Satan's aim is your destruction. In John chapter 8, verses 43 through 44, Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders of his day who have rejected him. And he gives probably one of the most extensive descriptions of Satan in the scriptures. He says this, why don't you understand what I say? We're talking about the religious leaders of his day for crying out loud. Why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. You cannot listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. My word, that coming out of Jesus' mouth, when Jesus is so often depicted as just kind of the shy guy. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. This is Satan's identity and M.O. This is it. He's the father of lies, and he wants to murder people by getting them to follow his evil desires. And all those who buy into these lies and reject the word of God are his what? They're his children. 
They're his children. They're his disciples, is what Jesus is saying. And so, friends, in what ways might you have bought into Satan's lies this week, this past semester, maybe even this morning as you're getting ready to even get here? In what ways are you buying into the schemes of Satan, to the lies of Satan? Do you look at a relationship, at grades, or a job as things that are just going to lead to a life that you always wanted rather than looking to Christ for fullness of life? Think about what you hear in the culture, okay? Think about what you hear in the culture. And this is going to be a four-week series we're going to do after this five-week series on the lies of Satan, the gospel according to Satan. The whole world, the whole world lies in the, in the power of the evil one, as John says in 1 John 5, 19. And Satan can often use society to promote platitudes such as, God just wants you to be happy. That if I just had blank, you name it, then I would be happy. We can often hear that. As if God's love toward you is measured by you getting what you want. As if man's greatest need is to have his desires met. And I mean, when we hear this, that sounds pretty great. When you first heard that, you probably believed it. I know I did. God just wants me to be happy. What's the problem with that? And it's subtle. What's the problem with that? Well, yeah, the whole focus is on man rather than on God, right? Man creates you for himself. Do you see how subtle that that is? And that gets chucked out in the culture all the time, all the time. And it's so subtle. Who wouldn't want God to only be about us? We are man, right? We are self-centered. But the problem with this is that what will ultimately satisfy us isn't something temporary, It's not an achievement, it's not a thing or an experience, but the glory of Christ and salvation through which we're brought into right standing with God. That's it. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4.3 that God's will for your life is your sanctification. That is your becoming more like Christ. And why? Because Christ is greater than being satisfied in a temporal craving. He's greater than that. He is better. And in him, we can have fullness of joy right now and for eternity. He is the goal of our lives, as we learn in Colossians chapter 1. And so, friend, where, you might, where might have you bought into Satan's schemes? Turn from living for half-truths, masquerading as full truths, to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, and receive fullness of joy forevermore. You do that by turning and trusting in him. That's how that happens. Well, Satan has a greatest hits list that tries to get us to believe something temporary will solve something eternal. That's what he's trying to do, as it's been put. And often it's not blatant lies, but half-truths that sound really spiritual, but ultimately lead to death. And understand, there are all kinds of false teachings and slogans that are out there that are challenging God's word. Which is why one of the ways that we battle against word distortion is with God's word, which we're going to see next week whenever J- Jacob teaches on Matthew 4. He'll look at Matthew 4. And so it's absolutely necessary to know God's word if we're going to be able to fight against satanic schemes because the way to the heart is through the ear. The way to the heart is through the ear. And that's how it's going to come. And so you've got to understand the scriptures. Lies are seductive. 
And we need to know the truth so that you can actually spot what is false. All right, so we've looked at Satan and his campaign to steal our hearts from worshiping God. But ultimately, Satan isn't the cause of our sin. He may tempt us to sin, which I'm going to define in a moment, but he can't cause us to sin. So he represents the bait, right? Well, he represents the bait. He presents the bait and the hook, but it's our responsibility whenever we go for the bait. He can present it, he can hide it, but it's on us when we take it. So point number two, man is responsibly rebellious. Like I told you, adverbs this morning are hot. The first thing to note is the irony of Genesis 3, the irony. Man and woman were created in God's image to rule over God's creation, which includes the serpent, who is a beast of the field. Instead, though, the serpent seeks to wield authority over them by getting them to think that they aren't like God. Did you notice that? Getting them to think that they aren't like God. But they already are like God because they're created in his image. That's what chapter, chapters 1 and 2 were getting at. They already are like God. And so by listening to the serpent instead of ruling over him, they're actually rejecting what God entrusted to them with his creation. And in doing so, they commit high treason against God, their supreme ruler. And so, friends, this is what sin is. This is what sin is. It's rebellion. It's high treason against our Lord. It's rejecting his supreme authority in order to establish our own. That's what sin is. It's rejecting God's supreme authority in order to establish our own. It's rebellion. It's high treason. Well, there's a lot more that can be said from this passage, but I want to focus on verse 6. Man's rebellion in verse 6. Before Genesis 3, man enjoyed perfect fellowship with God. They could eat of every tree. Why? Right? God is generous, except one, showing that they're under his authority. They were both naked and unashamed. I mean, how incredible would that be, right? Just walking around naked, unashamed about it. Some people do that, but ultimately, deep down, they are ashamed. They were both naked and unashamed, and they knew the joy of life without sin. They knew it. And the first thing that we see in verse 6 is what Eve sees. What does she see? She saw that the tree was good for food. She views something as good that isn't good for her. She wanted to define what was good instead of God. Do you see that? God said, that ain't good. <laughs> that ain't good for you to take and eat. And she wants to define what is good. Next, her eyes delighted in it. She enjoyed what was evil, what God told her not to enjoy. And finally, she desired the tree to make her wise, even though true wisdom is found in the fear of the Lord by living in obedience to him. She wanted to define what was good, pleasing, and wise when it was evil, unpleasant, and foolish. And these words, desire and delight, really reflect that this battle is ultimately waged in the heart of man. It reveals that spiritual warfare is a moral conflict over who we are, what we believe, and how we will live. It's about lordship. It's about your loyalty and whether or not you're going to serve the living God. Satan may tempt us, but we're responsible for our sin, and the consequences are tragic. What are the consequences? They're naked. They're ashamed. They're hiding from God. They're in conflict both vertically with God now. They're kicked out of the garden, and then they're in conflict horizontally with one another. Marital conflict. Doesn't look great. This doesn't sound like the good life that Satan promises. And so what we learn from this is that we're not exempt from responsibility for our sin, sinful choices. 
We're not exempt. It shows us where the war resides. It resides in our hearts. Friends, when you face struggles throughout life, whether brought on by satanic attacks or the subtle messaging of our culture or just even suffering in general, when you face all of that, do you quickly look at your circumstances? Do you look to others as your fundamental problem? Do you look to others as your fundamental problem? Do you look to your circumstances? If I just change jobs, if I just change classes, if I had a new roommate, if I moved to a different city, then I wouldn't be angry and impatient and jealous of others all the time. I understand I'm not saying that there aren't times when those things can be good for you and necessary for you. But ultimately, those things don't cause us to sin. And often we blame what's outside of us instead of looking inside of us. Just look at Adam and Eve in, in response to God right here, asking, you know, God asking them what had happened. What does Adam do? God goes to Adam first, right? That's the order of creation. What does Adam do? She gave it to me. The woman you, the woman you gave to me, right? Gave it to me. It's her fault. And then Eve says, What? What is she doing? The serpent, you know, that serpent told me to do it, right? And you see it. It's the blame shifting. And yet the problem was with Eve, what she desired and she delighted in. And we all do that, right? Both Adam was doing the same thing. That's heart language. And so we can't say that Satan made me do it. He may influence us, but he can't cause us to sin. In fact, the Bible doesn't make Satan out to be the focus of ministry at all. The focus is upon God and his people in relationship to him. And so, friends, where might you be shifting blame for your sin on your circumstances or on others? Where's the first place that you look? Number three, lastly, God is sovereignly victorious. Once again, great adverb. Sovereignly victorious. Adam and Eve rebel against God, and they receive God's just punishment for their sin. The Lord curses the ground because of their sin, and he tells Adam that his work is going to be hard. We all know that. You go to write down a little equation in math, you know how hard that is. You know how those late nights are not fun. Welcome to life under the curse, right? That's just part of it. Childbearing for Eve will be painful and difficult. On top of that, there will be marital strife. They're going to be kicked out of the garden where God's presence resides, and finally they will die. (laughs) Looking pretty bleak. Seems like a pretty brutal reality, but in it, God upholds his character. He upholds his character. He doesn't sweep sin underneath the rug. Instead, his punishment, his judgment, actually reveals his worth. Have you ever thought about that? That God's judgment, his punishment, actually reveals his worth and that he's worthy to be worshipped. He's not a God that's just a pushover, right? He is a holy God. He is the one that you always wanted to worship, that always does what is right, because that's his character, He's worthy of it. And when he judges, it's an expression of his worth, that he's the one alone worthy to be worshipped. However, Satan and sin, they don't get the last word. God is the one laying down the judgments, not Satan. Did you recognize that? In verses 14 and 15, God is the one laying down the judgments. It's not like Satan comes in trying to judge God and you know start judging other people. No, right here we get God's sovereignty over the situation by laying down judgment upon Satan. Right here. We get that even with Adam and Eve. God is sovereign over Adam and Eve. He judges the serpent, revealing his sovereignty over him. We see this type of sovereignty over Satan elsewhere in the Old Testament in the book of Job. In the first two chapters 
of Job, Satan comes to the Lord twice, questioning him about Job's faith. In fact, God actually initiates the conversation, which is wild when you think about it. He initiates the conversation. Yo, have you checked out my guy Job? Yeah, he's blameless. Yeah, have you checked him out? He's a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. I mean, can you even imagine God saying that of you? Oh my gosh, what a weighty declaration. And then Satan questions God saying, well, does Job just follow you for no reason? Does he fear you for no reason? Right? The reason why Job follows you, God, is because you keep on blessing him with everything. That's the only reason he follows you. Job loves God because God has blessed him. That's what Satan's argument is. And throughout the book of Job, you see that that is totally not it. That Job is holy God's. And yet God is sovereignly reigning over that whole, whole situation, and he even permits Satan to afflict Job. You can do whatever you want to him, but you can't take his life. God is showing his sovereignty over our lives. Right there. He's showing his sovereignty over Satan. That Satan can only do what the Lord allows and permits him to do, and God allows and permits that to happen to accomplish his purposes and his will. That is not foreign to the scriptures. That's Job. And we see it elsewhere in the scriptures. And you need to understand that whenever you're looking at spiritual warfare. That God is using all of it, everything, for his sovereign purposes and for your good. This is just a reminder that Satan may be a lion roaming around looking for someone to devour, but he's a lion that's on a leash. He is a lion that's on a leash. He does nothing outside of God's sovereign hand. God is not the cause of evil. He permits it. He will allow it for his sovereign purposes. It's a reminder that Satan is not equal to God, but he's accountable to him. His time is short. And friends, this is good news because unlike Star Wars, where it's like up in the air, who's going to win? Is the dark side going to win? Or is the force going to win? You know, it's like, it's what... In theology, it's what we call dualism, just this kind of like equal forces duking it out. We don't know who's going to win. That's not what this is. It's not even close. God is not, Satan is not equal to God. God sovereignly crushes his enemy. It's game over from the beginning. And in Genesis 3.15, we see the promise of this very thing. The Lord says to the serpent, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This verse is often known as the first gospel, which just means good news. It's good news because God has already declared victory over the serpent. He crushes the competition. And that victory of which this verse points toward came through his own son Jesus undoing Adam and Eve's sin by dying on a forsaken tree by becoming a curse for the sins of others, by rising from death to life for all who dwell in death's shadow so that those who look to him may have everlasting life. Friends, Jesus is the serpent crusher in Genesis 3.15. His victory is undeniable. It's unquestionable because God has kept his word by disarming the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly through his cross and resurrection by triumphing over them in Christ, as Paul says in Colossians 2.15. He triumphs over them in Christ. So what does that mean for you? This is the final application. What does that mean for you? 
It means that with any struggle with sin or temptation, you have the one on your side that reigns victorious. That ought to give you confidence. Every single day, God reigns, and he's victorious, and that is glorious. That ought to give you confidence in your fight to take up what God has supplied you with the full armor of God from Ephesians 6, which we're going to cover in week four. That ought to give you confidence, but also means you've got a responsibility. You need to put on the armor of God. That's not the armor of Trey. That is the armor of God that I've got to put on. And so I've got a responsibility that I need to take into account. However, though we're victorious through Christ's death and resurrection, we still live in a world that is marred by sin and temptation. So we don't need to be ignorant that there is a battle being waged around us. Every day is a battle. This war isn't against flesh and blood, as Paul says. He says that it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil and the spiritual forces in the heavens. There is an unseen realm right here that levels attacks that we must be watchful for and, pre- and prepared for for whenever it comes. And finally, one of the ways that we battle against the enemy is through declaring Christ his one. You do recognize that's what evangelism is. <laughs> right? We're not just going out, hey, do you want to follow Jesus? No, you're actually going out declaring that Christ already won. Game over. I don't even know if some of you remember that hip-hop song way back in the day. I'm so old. There was, a, there was a song called Game Over. And this is exactly what this is. You're going out and you're declaring Christ's victory over sin and death that have enslaved this person whom you love because you're sharing Christ with them and you're wanting them to no longer be enslaved but to be freed from that condemnation under God's reign. And so think about that. Everyone fears sharing their faith. We all do that. But do you view it as being used by God to win souls and to snatch them from the fire to no longer serve a creature like Satan, but your creator and redeemer? The most loving thing that you could ever do is share the gospel with somebody. Because deep down, you want them to be delivered from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. So are you letting the fear of man override your fear of God in love for others, and sharing Christ with them. There is much more that is at stake than meets the eye. I'll close with this. In the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a wonderful gospel moment. We just finished reading Chronicles of Narnia uh, to our girls. Well, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's this wonderful gospel moment where the White Witch of Narnia declares Prince Edmund her property because of his treachery to Aslan. He's a traitor, just like all of us. He's a traitor to Aslan, who's like the Christ figure. And yet Aslan the lion tells the white witch that he will die, white witch being like Satan, that he will die in Edmund's place. And after he dies and rises again, both of Edmund's sisters, Lucy and Susan, are there rejoicing with Aslan. And his sister Susan asks Aslan, what does it all mean? What does it all mean? And he says this, it means that though the witch knew the deep magic, There is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little farther back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. 
Friends, death is working backwards. It's working backwards. And until Christ comes and he returns to deliver its final blow, we make war against the flesh in confident hope for his return. Let me pray for us. And then we're going to go to discussion groups.